Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation. Uh, I'm sorry for the delay in the program, but we're ready to go right now. My name is Terry Miller. I'm director of the Center for International Trade and Economics here at Heritage, and I'm also editor of the annual Index of Economic Freedom, um, uh, which I have to advertise every time I get behind a podium. Um, today, um, we're going to talk about the trade war that's being fought in the United States. And I, I use that phrase uh, guardedly in the United States. The main battle is not between the United States and China or Mexico or Canada, though um, there are skirmishes there to be sure. But the heart of this conflict involves actions taken by the government of the United States that curtail the economic freedom of American consumers and American businesses. The tariffs and quotas imposed by the U.S. government are a tax on U.S. citizens. They reduce the flow into the United States of goods, services, and investment capital. Those flows that enhance our prosperity, create jobs, and increase our national wealth. In renegotiating existing trade agreements with South Korea, and especially Mexico and Canada, the U.S. government has claimed the right to control basic aspects of American companies' business practices, including the amount and type of content they must produce in various locations, the wages they must offer, and the prices they must pay for raw materials. As other countries follow suit with new tariffs and controls of their own, the damage is compounded. Markets shrink and trade, the basic engine of growth in a free market is diminished. U.S. businesses will fail as a result, and U.S. jobs will be lost. One of the industries most affected by the new U.S. trade policies is the American automobile industry. That industry, its research, design, production, and sales components accounts altogether for the employment of about 4.2 million Americans. The administration's tariffs on steel and aluminum, basic inputs into a U.S.-produced car or truck, have increased prices for those commodities by about 30%. Dealer prices will inevitably rise. Potential U.S. tariffs on autos and auto parts are estimated to put more than 150,000 American jobs at risk. Changes to the rules of origin provisions of NAFTA will disrupt efficient U.S. manufacturers' supply chains that have taken years to develop. 
It's a long way from the principles of economic freedom we've been championing here at the Heritage Foundation for decades. To discuss these developments and challenges, we brought together a panel of experts representing all aspects of the U.S. auto industry. But first, we are honored to hear from the Honorable Rob Portman, the junior United States Senator from Ohio. Senator Portman was first elected to Congress in 1993, where he represented Ohio's 2nd District for 12 years. In 2005, he was asked by President Bush to serve as the United States Trade Representative and later as Director of the Office of Management and Budget. He was first elected to the U.S. Senate in 2010. The Senator serves on the Senate Finance Committee, which has jurisdiction over trade issues. Recently, he introduced the Bipartisan Trade Security Act to ensure that Section 232 tariffs are used solely for national security purposes, as they were originally intended. His legislation would also increase congressional oversight into the use of future Section 232 tariffs. He's also a member of the Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee, the Energy and Natural Resources Committee, and the Committee on Foreign Relations. He's chairman of the Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations. In sum, there is no one more qualified to discuss trade issues today. So please join me in welcoming Senator Rob Portman. I'm going, to, I'm going to make a plug for your book as well. One eight hundred. No. Um, thank you for doing this because I think this compendium is incredibly important. And you know, as we're talking about trade, it's it's part of a broader global economic question. You know, what what works? Does do market economies and democracy uh, still uh, work best to help? promote opportunity and bring people out of poverty into the middle class? I think yes. Um, I think that's being challenged right now. And I think particularly it's being challenged uh, in the context of China and a different approach that they are taking uh, towards economic freedom uh, and ultimately political freedom. Uh, but I think the United States needs to continue to stand strong for human rights and for economic freedom and for democracy and political freedom. And uh, so... You know, even several years ago, that might not have been necessary to even say that. But today, I do think there's a, there's a debate going on, not just here in this country, but around the world, particularly among developing countries, as to what model they might aspire to. Uh, Terry has a great background um, as an ambassador to the United Nations, uh, his work at the State Department, uh, in addition to being author of this uh, Index of Economic Freedom, and I appreciate him having me here today. I think it's a timely discussion. There's lots going on with regard to the trade agenda, uh, lots of balls in the air. Uh, I have said uh, publicly and privately to the administration sometimes too many balls in the air uh, because it's difficult having been a U.S. trade representative sometimes to uh, make progress on agreements when uh, there is so much going on. And, and I re refer you to really four different prongs of the current uh, trade agenda uh, with the administration. One, of course, would be the Section 232 issue that was talked about here. That's the exemption, really, to our trade laws for national security purposes. It doesn't require showing any unfairness in trade. It doesn't require showing that there is uh, an influx of imports. It doesn't require showing domestic industry being harmed. 
Uh, it is the ability under a section of the GATT, now the WTO, uh, to be able to say, based on national security concerns, we want to put tariffs in place. It's only been used really twice uh, since its inception, which goes back to, I think, 1963. Uh, both was with regard to oil. Both was in the 70s, one with Iran, uh, one with Libya. And uh, yet it's being used today with regard to steel and aluminum tariffs. That's the 25% tariff uh, that's talked about, applied to the entire world. Some countries have gotten exemptions from that, uh, including uh, Republic of Korea, as was mentioned. There's sort of a standstill with the EU on it. And then under the uh, U.S.-Mexico uh, agreement that was just announced, this is the update on the NAFTA, there is talk about uh, having the 232 not apply there. But this is a, uh, in my view, uh, a misuse of 232, and that's why I have introduced legislation to kind of bring it back to its original purpose, which is true national security. In the case of the 232 on steel and aluminum, as you may know, the Department of Defense, uh, it's now known publicly, did not support uh, the national security basis. By the way, the same happened to George uh, W. Bush when he came into office talking about putting steel tariffs in place. Originally, he had talked about using this 232, the national security exemption. And as you will recall, Terry, uh, the Commerce Department, which has the responsibility for determining a national security threat, uh, did not uh, go along with that. They indicated this was not a national security issue, so he ended up using another part of our trade laws, uh, Section 201, as I recall, uh, with regard to putting tariffs in, in place, which were short-lived. Uh, but the point is, 232 has not been used traditionally as it's being used now, and that's why I think it's important to bring it back to what was intended back in the 60s, which was true national security situations. And specifically, uh, our legislation would say two things. Uh, one, that the Defense Department, the Secretary of Defense, would make the determination. They have the expertise, after all, to determine what is a national security threat and what is not. And uh, again, in this particular instance, our understanding is that there was not agreement from DOD as to the 232 application to steel and aluminum. Um, and then second, it says that with regard to the remedy, uh, yes, commerce would have the responsibility there, which I think is appropriate, but that it would have the uh, opportunity also to go back to Congress with a motion of disapproval, should the Congress disapprove, to go back to the constitutional underpinnings of our trade policy, which is ultimately that Congress has the responsibility for commerce between nations. So we think our legislation uh, is appropriate. Uh, it is bipartisan. Um, we are um, hopeful that that legislation can have a hearing and, and have a markup and that we can narrow the way 232 is applied because I, I think misusing 232 has two potential problems. One is uh, the fact that if we proceed with using 232 in this way, I think we will be taking away that tool in the future. Well, why do I say that? I believe there will be cases taken to WTO that will be successful ultimately there was one uh, years ago with the European Union and us. It was settled. Um, but in this case, if it's clear that there are not national security reasons for the application, I think it's possible that the WTO exemption for this might be taken away altogether. And I think it's an important tool to have in the toolbox in the case of true national security problems. If you were to have a, a, a war uh, and you were to need, for instance, the ability to avoid other countries from uh, depleting, say, our steel and aluminum industries in order to provide uh, the resources you needed for that, that conflict, there would, that would be a case of national security. Um, 
Second, I think if we uh, continue to apply it in this way um, and not base it on fairness, what will result is exactly what we have seen already, which is other countries saying, great, that's fine. The United States is going to put in place these tariffs without any indication of unfair trade. In other words, no indication of uh, them sending us exports that are sold at below their cost, which is called dumping or subsidizing, uh, uh, which happens, by the way, quite frequently with some countries. And when that does happen, the United States has laws to deal with that that, again, are um, laws that are appropriate under the international rules, under the WTO, anti-dumping laws, you know, countervailing duty laws. Uh, but other countries are going to say, well, if it's not based on fairness, you can just put tariffs in place for any reason. Fine, we're happy to do that. Uh, and because it's sometimes quite popular to do it, you know, from a populist point of view, that's that that could lead to, which again you've seen with some of these countries, uh, a an escalation of tariffs. So when we put the 232 against uh, Canada with regard to steel as an example, I think the amount was about 23 billion dollars. Uh, they in turn immediately put tariffs on some of our products, about half of that, I think about 12 billion dollars. And that included, by the way, agricultural products from Ohio, my home state, um, manufactured products from Ohio, my home state. And you had this escalation of, of tariffs, which you know ultimately is not good for the economies of either country, certainly not good for consumers. So I think those are the two risks you run when you say we're not going to use our trade laws. And you know, fairness is in the eye of the beholder to a certain extent. I get that. But when you go through a process to determine what's fair and what's not fair, for instance, dumping uh, or subsidizing um, or a, a surge of exports to the United States, you know, meant to destabilize an industry and then proving that that industry is materially damaged, which is what, the, you know, the International Trade Commission and the ITA are responsible for determining, the Commerce Department and the International Trade Commission uh, both have th those responsibilities. If you go through that process, you've shown some unfairness, a lack of a level playing field. And I think that's what our trade policy ought to be based on. And Terry and I may differ a little bit uh, because he's more of a pure free trader. And uh, I'm not. Uh, having been at USCR and representing Ohio, which is a huge manufacturing state, I do understand uh, that at times it is appropriate for us to make that determination of what is fair and what is unfair, and in turn require that level playing field. And ideally, what you end up with is a situation where both countries agree to back down. So in other words, rather than raising tariffs on our side, having the other country raise tariffs, which harms both countries' economies and the consumers in both, both countries, you want to go down to the, to the lower level. And the United States, frankly, is a relatively open and free economy. Our tariffs are relatively low compared to other countries. There are some countries that have even lower tariffs, uh, but they're the exceptions. Uh, but we should be encouraging every country in the world to adopt the lower tariffs, the lower barriers, but to do it in a, in a fair way. So what the administration has done is, one, pursue this 232, which we talked about. Uh, second, uh, they have renegotiated NAFTA, so it's an updating of NAFTA. That's the uh, U.S.-Mexico uh, agreement, the uh, USMCA. I think they could have found a, a better acronym. Um, I call it USCMA, which, you know, just trips off the tongue, doesn't it? I mean, it's just a beautiful, beautiful acronym. Uh, but anyway, USCMA uh, is the second one. And I'm delighted that we reached an agreement with, with Mexico and Canada, by the way. Um, I, again, representing Ohio, 
uh, we did have some concerns with the existing North American Free Trade Agreement because it hadn't been updated in 24 years, and it was time to do it. Um, things like electronic uh, commerce, as an example, but also on other issues where there needed to be some some changes on the labor and environmental side and so on. So it tilts are sort of brought up to speed with other agreements. There are other aspects that we'll talk about in a second. But that was an initiative which, again, with so many balls in the air, my concern was we would probably take uh, too much time to get that resolved because we were distracted by so many other things. Um, and it did take too much time, in my view, but we got there. And so now we have this new agreement that has been uh, decided on. It won't be voted on by Congress until next year because of the amount of time it takes under our trade promotion authority in Congress. Um, I would say there's one small caveat, which is you could, if Congress agreed, you could expedite that process a little bit and try to do something before year end, but it would be very difficult to do that. But that's possible. But more likely it comes up next year. Uh, so you have 232 we talked about. You have the U.S.-Mexico um, new free trade agreement between the North American countries, which is very important. Uh, by the way, for Ohio, our biggest trading partner by far is Canada, by far. Second is Mexico. Uh, China's a distant third. So for us, it's incredibly important to have that in place. Uh, third, I would say it is uh, rebalancing trade with China. And that's the Section 301 case against China. That's different than 232 because it is based on a sense of fairness or unfairness. Now, the WTO may well step in at some point, as they have in the past, and say that the 301 is not uh, you know, properly being implemented. But the fact is, if you read that, that 301 case against China, it's very specific as to what we're asking for. And it does have to do primarily with intellectual property. So it has to do with hacking. It has to do with licensing agreements. It has to do with joint venture requirements. It has to do with things where China is not not playing by the rules. In other words, it's not a level playing field. If a Chinese company wants to come here, by the way, and set up a company, they're free to do so. And they do it. Uh, but the same is typically not true with regard to U.S. investment there, as an example. And the intellectual property that is often taken in this process is then used not just in China, but often comes back here to this country to be used, again, unfairly in the sense that we have intellectual property laws in place to protect whether it's manufacturing processes or patents or trademarks. So that's what that issue is about. Um, that one, again, would be great if we could have some resolution. What I have promoted there is that the administration do a better job of laying out clearly what their objectives are, because my sense is that uh, China's not sure. Now, having negotiated with China when I was U.S. Trade Representative, they're very good negotiators. And uh, so when I meet with the Chinese ambassador about this issue, as I have recently, and uh, they say they're confused, what are our objectives, uh, I point them to the, th to the actual petition, actually the, the, the trade case itself, which, again, is very specific. Uh, but it's not just about buying more soybeans, although that would be nice. We sell a lot of soybeans to China from Ohio, and we appreciate that market. Uh, but it is about structural changes uh, in their trade relationship as a mature trading partner now and, and as an export-driven economy. Uh, we're simply saying they should play by the by the rules. I met this morning with the presidents of the major research universities in America, as an example, and, you know, there's a concern about uh, Chinese access to intellectual property through our research, uh, as, as, as one example. So that's the third front. The fourth front, uh, I think, is actually very exciting, and that is more trade opening agreements. So you've heard uh, recently from the U.S. Trade Representative that they're interested in opening up new trade agreements potentially with the EU, uh, with Japan, uh, with the UK. 
Uh, I started a group uh, last year on UK, uh, maybe it's earlier this year, a caucus when the Brexit vote occurred that said that uh, we would like to have a free trade agreement with the UK as they exit the European Union. I think that's an important first step toward a broader EU agreement because we have the ability uh, with the UK to put together agreement relatively quickly. Uh, we have very similar approaches to trade. Uh, we have relatively low tariffs. We have the opportunity to change some of the standards to make them more uniform, as an example, and to really improve trade between our two countries. So my, my hope is that we'll be able to do that. Um, but anyway, that's exciting to me. By the way, with trade agreements, uh, sometimes they get criticized, including uh, sometimes by our commander-in-chief. Uh, and I've talked to him about this issue, so I'm not saying anything I wouldn't say to him publicly and privately. But you have to look at our trade agreements and, you know, be objective as to what the result has been. And that is good for exports and good for American workers and American farmers. So are all the agreements perfect? No, no agreement's perfect. And did we need to update NAFTA? Yes, we did. It was appropriate that we did so. Um, however, we only have trade agreements with about 10% of the global economy. In fact, it's less than 10%. But let's take 10%. Think about it. We don't have a trade agreement with Japan. We don't have a trade agreement with the EU. We don't have a trade agreement with China. We have trade agreements with some important countries like Mexico and Canada. But the largest economies, we don't have a trade agreement. Where we have a trade agreement, which is about 10% of the world, um, about 20 countries, uh, we actually have a trade surplus. <laughs> Barely, but we have a trade surplus. 10% of the world actually accounts for 47% of our exports. So 47% of our exports go to less than 10% of the world. Those are the countries with, with which we have a trade agreement. Now, in the context of a trade deficit of about $500 billion, to have a trade surplus, slight trade surplus with these countries, is significant, and we should think about that. So as important as it is to have balanced trade, as I call it, and that is to have this level playing field, and again, uh, a, pure free, a pure free trade position, uh, as Terry explained eloquently earlier, you know, would, would say that balanced trade is not as important because uh, ultimately consumers benefit more from just open trade without worrying about uh, the, the, the balance. But from that perspective, uh, I think it's, it's really important that we open up more markets. And that's why I'm excited about, again, their interest in moving ahead with a U.K. agreement, moving ahead with a broader European Union agreement, moving ahead with an agreement with Japan, which would then bring us in uh, more to other countries, obviously in the Asia-Pacific region, which would be good with regard to uh, our continued economic competition with China, to have not just a bigger footprint in that region of the world, but also to help develop some of the standards so that they are based on market economies and knocking down barriers and transparency, uh, all the things that we know will lead to better economic growth uh, in the Asian Pacific area. So those are the those are the four areas that they're working on, and they're all they're all really important. Uh, by the way, since we're talking about autos today, in part, they're all really important to the auto industry. Because you think about it, our auto industry is a huge industry here in this country, but also a huge export industry. Um, Ohio, by the way, is the second largest automotive state in the United States, both by vehicle output and also by the number of jobs we have, about 100,000 auto workers in Ohio. We're also the number one producer of engines and transmissions in the country. Take that, Michigan. Um, <laughs> 
So I'm co-chair of the Senate Auto Caucus. Uh, I'm from a big auto state, and I think it's absolutely critical that we do all we can to support and grow this industry that's so important to our state. And again, I think this two-pronged approach. One, being sure that imports are fairly traded, and two, aggressively opening up markets overseas works perfectly for the auto industry. Uh, for those of you who don't know it, the auto industry is our single largest export sector. And this is a surprise to some people who think it might be soybeans uh, or the ag sector, but uh, nearly one in five American-made cars and light trucks are being sold overseas. So the Jeep plant in uh, Toledo, Ohio, sends Wranglers overseas. And so it's important to have access to these foreign markets. In fact, it's vital to the health of the auto industry just as it is to our economy as a whole. Just like everything else, as I said earlier, the auto industry does face unfair competition. Again, this one where I may differ uh, from some in the room, but currency manipulation is one of them. When a country purposely manipulates its currency to have an effect on trade, it hurts our ability to sell cars overseas. And I would use Japan as an example of that. Japan has intervened in its currency markets 376 times since 1991. And by the way, foreign import penetration in Japan is less than 6%. And the U.S. penetration is far less than that. Now, that's partly because of currency manipulation, partly it's for other reasons, some of which are related to trade, some of which are not. It's not the only reason. Standards and technical barriers are one way that countries, including Japan, box out American auto exports. Some countries won't accept the federal motor vehicle safety standards, making it really difficult, if not impossible, for American cars to be on their roads. Uh, that's, in a sense, a protectionist approach, but hidden as a standards issue. I'll give you one example. Colombia and Ecuador recently tried to restrict the American safety standards in favor of European standards. And uh, USTR, to their credit, uh, recently was successful in having those countries revise their regulations to protect that market for U.S. vehicles. But as we open new markets, we need to ensure that our trading partners do respect our laws and play by the rules. Instead of deciding to subsidize certain e industries that are favored by them, and we need to be tough but fair with regard to countries that cheat. We need to have a level playing field. By the way, if we do that, I believe American businesses and workers will be fine. Um, yeah, there are some countries that are going to have a competitive advantage on labor rates as an example. But we have a competitive advantage on other things, including energy costs now, um, including our research and development here. And I think if it's a level playing field, we can compete and we can win. And by the way, American workers believe that too. We have legislation that I introduced in 2015 that's working to do just that. We called it, um, very creatively, the Level the Playing Field Act. Um, and uh, it's actually working to make it easier on the front end for workers and for businesses to win cases before the International Trade Administration, basically saying that let's expedite these cases, get them decided quickly so that when something is dumped, sold it below its cost or subsidized, you don't have to wait so long that your company goes out of business or you lose a lot of your workforce to resolve the issue. I also co-authored what's called the Enforce Act in 2016, which helps on the back end. So the front end is the Level of Playing Field Act, but the back end is, okay, once these tariffs are in place because of unfair trade, how do you ensure that they're actually implemented? Because countries and companies, foreign companies, try to evade those tariffs. And so we need to have a more, again, a stronger enforcement effort to, to ensure that there is a level playing field both on the front end but also on the back end to make sure new duties are actually being enforced. Uh, so those are things that are going to help 
well, with, with regard to trade and keeping it fair. Um, on the uh, NAFTA agreement, because it was talked about earlier, uh, 24 years ago, we had more auto jobs in America, obviously, when NAFTA was, was first written. It's for a lot of reasons. Some of it is automation, for sure. Some of it is the implementation of technology to make uh, the production uh, more efficient. Uh, but it's also interesting that we have lost about 350,000 auto jobs while Mexico has gained about 430,000 auto jobs since that time. That's, that's a fact. Uh, now, it doesn't mean that all that's because of unfair trade again, but I do think that some of the aspects of the new USMCA are going to help. And I think specifically, uh, and was talked about the, the percentage that has to be made in North America to apply for tariff-free treatment. Again, I may have a difference with Terry on this, but the idea is you have this agreement between these three countries. And if you want to take advantage of the lower tariffs between these countries, then you don't want to have com cars coming in and being um, – uh, sold essentially from, let's say, China or Japan into Mexico, and then without having a lot of value add to that car, have it be sold into this market and take advantage of the market when we're not getting the same advantages in Japan or China for our products. So the idea is to have an agreement that actually works between these three countries. So there was, 24 years ago, a 62.5% requirement that the value of the vehicle, 62.5% of it, or auto part, had to be made in one of the three countries to take advantage of the agreement. This new agreement ups that to 75%. So uh, I know the auto companies are going to be talking later today. They can talk about what they think about that. But my sense is that most of the auto companies, the big three, are okay with that. They were not okay with, a, with some other aspects that were discussed in the agreement, nor was I. Uh, but I think we resolved something there that actually will, will work for the U.S. auto workers and U.S. auto companies. Um, for the first time, these new rules of origin will require 70% of the steel used in the vehicle be North American steel. And again, pure free traders will say that's not appropriate. Um, I would say this is an agreement between, between our three countries, and I think it's appropriate uh, that that steel be produced as much as possible within those countries given what's happening with regard particularly to China, where they have an enormous overcapacity of steel production. They've gone from about 15 years ago producing 15% of the global steel to about half of the global steel today in China. They don't need it. So they send it out to other countries. There's a glut. And they often sell it below its cost. And some of it comes to our country, some of it directly, some of it indirectly, most of it indirectly, frankly, from other countries. So you want to avoid that issue in order to, again, Establish what your fairness standards are, and we can disagree or agree on that, uh, but then have those those standards be applied. So that's part of the changes you'll hear about today from the auto industry. I want to hear from them too, see what they think about it. But I think in the end, we ended up with an agreement that provides some stability and predictability. And um, I think perhaps most important for me, there is talk about now applying the 232. This is the national security waiver we talked about at the outset to autos. So recall I said that with regard to steel and aluminum, I think we need to have a level playing field, but we ought to be sure that it's based on some sense of fairness. And again, there can be a debate on that, but let's determine what that is, not just based on national security when it's not a proper use of national security. There is discussion of now saying we'll do that to autos as well, as we have with steel and aluminum. Um, I would suggest, again, balanced trade. You know, let's be sure it's fair. Let's aggressively pursue our trade remedies and trade enforcement. But let's not apply 232 to car imports from places like Canada 
where we don't have a national security concern. Uh, in fact, what we have is a supply chain that goes back and forth from northern Ohio and Canada constantly, as an example, back and forth with parts and so on. And so I think using that 232 uh, would be a mistake with regard to autos. Now, in the agreement, the U.S.-Mexico agreement we talked about, USCMCA, um, there was a side letter that basically gives Mexico and Canada a safe harbor on 232 on autos. In other words, that they now don't have to fear the application of the 232 as uh, as is being threatened. And I think that's really important. And in some respects, that may be the most important part of the agreement in terms of the future stability of the of the car industry in America. And I, again, you'll hear some, from some experts on that. They're nodding their heads. That's good. Um, because they're, they're the ones who have to deal with this every day. And I think they're looking for that predictability and that safe harbor. So I'm glad that happened. Um, and again, I think it's a mistake for us to misuse 232, whether it's on autos or other products, for all the reasons we talked about earlier. We may, we may well lose the tool altogether. We uh, are going to see higher tariffs uh, being happily applied to our exports of agricultural manufacturing services, uh, goods and, and services. So um, I, I do hope that we'll be sure that we are sticking to our fairness standard. By the way, if you did apply 232 to autos, the best estimate I've seen is that it would increase the cost of making a car in America by about $2,000. They may have higher numbers today because I know there's some that would be even higher than that. Um, there's another study saying it could cost 624,000 American jobs. That seems high, but on the other hand, let's hear from the experts. Uh, so this has real consequences in terms of my state of Ohio and, and our country and our consumers. Uh, I would say that autos help run our economy. They don't run a national security risk. Um, and again, that's why we've introduced this legislation called the Trade Security Act, which takes us back to the original intent um, with regard to how the 232 ought to be applied. Um, finally, with regard to China, um, I, I will just say there are lots of issues. We talked about the intellectual property issues earlier. Um, Republican and Democrat administrations alike have tried to deal with China on the trade issue to get China's attention. And frankly, um, China continues to violate and circumvent our trade laws in so many respects. Um, I hope that the administration's latest actions will get their attention, but I hope we can resolve it because I hope they'll be clear about what the objectives are and they'll be based on a sense of fairness. Uh, on automotive, just quickly, we talked earlier about um, China's interest in acquiring more technology. They've been uh, consistently acquiring American automotive technology. They require a joint venture for auto production. So if you want to make a car in China, it's got to be a joint venture. And the non-Chinese investor, um, the U.S. company, is capped at 50 percent. Usually it's 49 percent, 51 percent Chinese-owned uh, as, as a maximum for the foreign investor. And through that, they have acquired information and technology. And um, it's made it harder for foreigners to invest in, in autos. Before 2010, China encouraged the manufacturing of automobiles. Uh, then they permitted it from 2010 to 2014. This is U.S. companies there. Then in 2014, they restricted it, uh, actually in 2015, to bolster its favored Chinese companies. So we've gone from encouraging, having companies go to China. I remember being there in the 1980s, mid-1980s, when Jeep first set up a factory there, and it was being encouraged at that time. Getting the technology was important, um, and having the jobs. Then they permitted it, then they restricted it. 
And um, so for electric cars, China has put barriers on other countries' exports to pressure foreign companies to bring technology there for manufacturing. The result is now nearly 500 electric vehicle producers in China. And I think soon these Chinese electric vehicles will be arriving here in this country. And what we're seeing with electric cars is um, right out of the playbook they've used with regard to steel overcapacity. Uh, we know how the steel overcapacity has turned out. Overcapacity has hurt our steel industry and other steel industries around the around the world, which again is why this trade enforcement is, is important. So I, I do think we have to resolve these issues, and they're tough issues. And again, look forward to hearing from the companies today as to what they think about autos in China. I will say that American ingenuity and assembly line automobile manufacturing is what made owning cars possible for everyone. Uh, I still own and drive a 1917 Model T, and so I think about it every time I drive my Model T. Wow, this thing's 100 years old, and uh, it was made right here in America. And that, that technology is something we want to be able to maintain and then to use so that other countries can benefit from it around the world. So I think ultimately... It's about this two-pronged approach, this balanced trade approach. One, enforcing our trade laws to ensure that imports coming in are not unfairly traded, and doing so aggressively, but on the basis of fairness. And then second, expanding markets. So important. And uh, again, I think our trade agreements are an example of that, and I think we should do more of them. And if we do so, then American workers and American farmers, American service providers are going to benefit. Thank you all for having me here today. It's great to be back. Thank you so much, Senator Portman. You've been incredibly generous with your time and your thoughts for us. And as one of the leading advocates for trade and, and economic freedom in the U.S. Senate, uh, we wanted to present you with a Heritage Foundation tie. Thank you very much. Thank, you. thank you again for your support. Yeah. Is it as nice looking as yours? Uh, it's better looking okay, than mine. Good. <laughs> thank you. Uh, now I would ask our panelists to please join me up here, and we'll um, delve down in uh, a little deeper into the automobile industry itself. Okay, I'm going to introduce all three of our panelists, and uh, then I'll ask them each to uh, make some brief opening remarks, and, and then we'll have a discussion that um, among them, and also that involves uh, you and the audience as well. Um, Ann Wilson serves as Senior Vice President for Government Affairs for the Motor and Equipment Manufacturers Association. In this position, she acts as the Chief Lobbyist for Motor Vehicle Suppliers and MEMA's four market segment associations. And I have four acronyms here uh, that I'm going to ask Ann to just tell us what they mean right now. Oh, right now. We represent original equipment automotive uh, suppliers, so uh, suppliers who sell uh, components and systems to John's members and other vehicle manufacturers. We represent the automotive aftermarket. So think about it when you need to get new brakes or lights or windshield wipers for your car. We also represent heavy-duty manufacturers, so anything in the commercial truck industry. And then finally, we do have a small remanufacturing division, too. 
Thank you. It's confusing as only trade associations can be. <laughs> um, Anne's a graduate of Washington University School of Law. She's represented various industry groups before Congress and state legislatures, including the Louisiana Municipal Association, the American Trucking Associations, the American Moving and Storage Association, and six years as the chief lobbyist for the Rubber Manufacturers Association, which represents major U.S. tire manufacturers. John Bozella is a veteran auto industry executive and currently the president and CEO of Global Automakers. He's been a vocal advocate for free trade policies and in 2015 launched Here for America. Here for America tells the story of investment by international automakers in the United States and advocates for open trade and investment policies. Before coming to that association in 2014, Bazella served as a senior operating executive for Cerberus Operations and Advisory Company. Prior to that, he spent nearly 20 years in the auto sector in senior positions at both Ford Motor Company and um, various uh, iterations of Chrysler um, <laughs> as it evolved over time. Early in his career, uh, he served as New York City's Director of State Legislative Affairs under Mayor David Dinkins. He's a graduate of Cornell University. Evelyn Suarez is the president of the Suarez Firm and provides legal and consulting services to companies engaged in international trade, particularly related to customs, anti-corruption, and trade policy. She assists clients with a wide variety of issues from those arising at the border in dealing with customs and border protection to interpreting changes in U.S. trade policy, such as the renegotiation of NAFTA. Uh, she spent her early professional career at the U.S. International Trade Commission and at the predecessor agency to U.S. Customs and Border Protection. She received her Bachelor of Art degree cum laude from Rutgers University, and her Juris Doctor degree from Georgetown University Law Center. Um, I think I'm going to stop there and uh, ask Anne to make some uh, opening remarks. Well, um, good morning, everyone. Um, I do represent um, motor vehicle suppliers, which for those of you who are the uninitiated in the automotive or motor vehicle world, you're thinking, who are these folks? They contribute over 70% of the value of most new motor vehicles. In addition, we uh, manufacture uh, the parts and components that you need to repair and retain vehicles that are on the road, as well as um, interacting, as I, as I mentioned, with the heavy-duty industry. So we are actually you know, part and parcel of the manufacturing fabric of this country. We have almost 900,000 direct jobs. And think about it in ways of not only do we um, have suppliers that are around final assembly for vehicle manufacturers, but we have suppliers all over this country, aftermarket suppliers, remanufacturing suppliers, um, suppliers in the heavy-duty industry. So there's virtually not a community in the United States that's not impacted by our manufacturers. What we have seen, and I think the senator did an excellent job, is sort of an overview of what we are seeing in trade right now. But... I can go into a room with 200 CEOs, senior executives of supplier companies, and they are all affected by some aspect of this administration's trade policy, be it the renegotiation of NAFTA, USMCA, uh, the uh, 301 tariffs on um, Chinese products, 
uh, the uh, steel and aluminum tariffs, and then the very dire consequences that would happen if there is actually a 232 on imported autos or motor vehicle parts. And keep in mind, if a lot of our members, if you look at our membership, um, two-thirds of our jobs are in smaller manufacturing facilities. So these are folks who actually are, you know, maybe they have one facility in the United States, maybe they have another one, maybe within Canada, Mexico, or maybe in Asia or Europe. And they don't have the ability to really pivot like many of our global members do or like some of the vehicle manufacturers do about investment. If the cost of tariffs get to be too much, the lever that they will pull is employment, and that's all there is to it. They have no other lever to keep their P&L and their companies going. So I look forward to the questions, and I'll reflect a little bit more about the impact this is having on our membership. Thank you, Ann. John? Thank you. Thank you, Terry, and thank you to the Heritage Foundation for having us today. Uh, and I also want to uh, thank Senator Portman for his leadership uh, and support for the U.S. auto industry over many years in many different positions, as Terry noted, uh, especially with regard to workforce development and his leadership, certainly with regard to questions about the use or misuse of 232 uh, in general and specifically with regard to autos is badly needed. And so we, I, I want to just... Uh, uh, note uh, how appreciative we are in the industry of uh, Senator Portman's leadership. Um, Terry mentioned uh, Here for America, a project we started in 2015. And when we started this project, we set out to do something very simple and basic, which is we wanted to tell the story of the U.S. auto industry as it is today. Uh, the beneficiary of open investment policies, reduced barriers to trade, supportive uh, business climate, uh, the opportunity to export vehicles all around the world. You know, in today's environment of high tariffs and managed and centrally planned trade, that original mission seems kind of quaint, doesn't it? Um, but let me just tell you where I think the industry is today and what it really looks like today. 14 car companies build cars and trucks here in the United States. Soon that number will be 15 with a new joint venture that was recently announced. 11 of those car companies are international automakers who have come here, listened to the customer, put down roots, and now do everything here uh, from uh, R&D, product development, manufacturing, sales, and service, the whole business. Uh, those companies alone have invested $82 billion in their U.S. operations, and they employ 133,000 Americans. Last year, those companies alone produced 5.2 million vehicles, almost half the vehicles produced here in the United States. We exported, as Senator Portman noted, 2 million, 2 million cars and trucks from plants here in the United States to countries all around the world. This is an enormous benefit uh, to working men and women all across the automotive value chain, uh, from ANS members uh, to the global manufacturers that build cars and trucks here today. 60% of Americans purchase cars with what you might have called years ago foreign nameplates. Most of those cars are built here in the United States in their household names. And in fact, I noted last night that President Trump was at a rally at the Toyota Center in Texas. Mm -hmm. And so you can see the industry is very different today than it might have been a generation or, or two ago. And so why is this? Why is this industry so broad, so integrated, so international? Well, it's for a couple of reasons. First, companies want to build cars where they sell them. 
All companies want this. They want the opportunity to be close to the customer. Secondly, they want to operate in a positive business climate. And we've had that over the course of many years here in the United States. They want to operate in an environment of free trade and open investment, where we have an opportunity to come here, invest, employ Americans, and export vehicles around the world. Our future in the U.S. auto industry, a very mature U.S. market, is in exports in the future. So reduced barriers to trade, more opportunities, more agreements, more uh, uh, access to markets around the world is going to be key to the future of the industry. Oh, and by the way, it produces great choices for American consumers and affordability. So this country has been a very, very good place to build cars and trucks. Um, think about it. Let's talk about the last quarter century. Why? Because NAFTA, the original NAFTA, started about a quarter century ago. Vehicle production in the United States has increased. Hasn't decreased. It's increased over the course of NAFTA. There is no giant sucking sound in the auto industry. We're making more cars and trucks here in the United States today built by Americans than we did before NAFTA. We're exporting twice as many vehicles today as we did before NAFTA. The value of those exports is quadruple what it was before NAFTA. So free trade and open investment policies, good, solid agreements have been a winning formula for the U.S. auto industry. Where are we today? Well, you know, we've been at or near record levels in the United States auto industry for sales, for manufacturing, and for exports. Now, it's been a great run since the depths of the financial crisis. But there are probably some headwinds here. You know, we are seeing interest rates start to creep up. Um, we are probably, uh, you know, we are very much of a cyclical industry, and so we're at a point in the auto cycle uh, where we're, we're fairly mature. But I do have to observe that the uncertainty in the current trade environment creates some significant headwinds for the U.S. auto industry. Senator Portman talked about a couple of them. Let me just sort of review the bidding a little bit. Tariffs on steel and aluminum as a result of the 232 investigation have already increased the cost of auto production in the United States, making us less competitive to other auto sectors around the world. And yes, it is a competition, and we want to win that competition for American workers and American-based companies. Not only is the cost of production going up, but that means the cost of vehicles will go up. And so this is already, we're seeing the challenges of misapplied 232 tariffs uh, and their impact on the auto industry. Senator Portman talked about the United States-Mexico-Canada agreement. Um, I mentioned earlier what a winning formula the current NAFTA has been. Uh, the new agreement is much more complex and likely to be much more costly than the agreement that it replaces. Uh, there, is, uh, there was one requirement in the old NAFTA or in the current NAFTA for automakers, 62%, 62.5% regional content. There are seven requirements in the new agreement. Not one. There are seven. Um, you miss any one of those, you fail to get the benefits 
of duty-free trade. So we, it remains to be seen uh, how uh, well this agreement does for the U.S. auto industry. Um, we, we are hopeful as we continue to re- review the details uh, that it can be a workable agreement, but we have got to look through it because it's very complex uh, and highly regulated. Uh, let me make one more observation about uh, the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement. Senator Portman referred to a safe harbor uh, for uh, the industry, the auto industry, within this new agreement if 232 tariffs are applied to autos. Safe harbor is a bit of a too broad a term, in my opinion. Uh, basically, what these side agreements would do is establish quotas or caps. And it's unclear to me how those quotas or caps will be applied to specific companies over the course of the agreement. It is positive, and I do agree with Senator Portman on this, that we've at least attempted to address the question of punitive 232 auto tariffs in the context of the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement, but it remains to be seen to me how that will uh, actually um, be applied. So I remain a little bit concerned about the fact that if this tool is used, uh, that we may have you know uh, challenges even here uh, in the region uh, beyond uh, how it might be applied with other trading partners. Uh, let me just uh, mention a couple of other things very quickly, uh, and then hopefully we'll we'll get into uh, some uh, further questions with regard to uh, some of these points. Um, we are seeing in the auto industry the effects of the China 301 uh, tit-for-tat tariffs. Um, they are affecting the auto industry uh, on both sides of the U.S.-China automotive trade. Here's a fun fact to know in trade. In 2017, the United States exported almost 260,000 cars and trucks built in the United States to China. We have an automotive trade surplus with China. We export way more cars built here in America by Americans to China than we import from China. As a result of the tariffs under 301, that trade could change. Are there issues in the U.S.-China trade relationships? Absolutely there are. And I agree with Senator Portman that it's important that those issues get resolved. But I'm just making the point here that there are consequences to the current strategy if we can't resolve those trading issues. Uh, And we could see uh, significant impact in states like South Carolina and Alabama, which are export engines uh, uh, of vehicles uh, from the United States uh, to China. Um, So let me just wrap up with one uh, final thought. I think that, as Senator Portman observed, Congress does need to get involved. The U.S. Congress has uh, delegated its trade authority to the executive, uh, and that has resulted in uh, a a fairly efficient process when it comes to trade negotiations. But I think Congress does have to look at questions like whether 232 is appropriately applied uh, in the case of steel and aluminum, and especially in the case of autos. And so we do welcome uh, congressional review uh, of 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 this broader uh, trade environment, specifically with regard to 232, and I hope that Senator Portman and others uh, uh, are successful in in moving forward with that endeavor. So let me just stop there, and I'll look forward to your questions.
Thank you, John. Evelyn? Yes, uh, good morning, and thank you, Ambassador Miller. Um, I'm, I'm going to speak to the um, steel and aluminum 232 tariffs that uh, Senator Portman referenced. Um, I'm going to talk about them generally, very briefly, and also about the product exclusion process, which has been going on since the spring. Before I get started, um, my, my comments are very limited and technical as a customs and trade lawyer, but I need to make this disclaimer. Any views that I express are my own views and not of my clients. So the, uh, this spring in March, specifically March 8th, President Trump, Trump issued two presidential proclamations imposing tariffs uh, based on Section 232 of the Trade Expansion Act of 1962 on steel at 25%. Uh, he imposed a 25% duty, and on alum, aluminum, uh, he put a 10% duty. At the same time, he did exempt Canada and Mexico because of the ongoing uh, NAFTA renegotiations. Uh, I won't go to, through every uh, blow by blow, but um, by um, uh, there, there were negotiations with Korea for, for on chorus, and uh, that resulted in a uh, quota and a, a, a removal of the tariffs and imposition of a quota for uh, for a Korea in the amount of 70% of its annual steel export volume to the United States from 2015 through 2017. Um, from the get-go, uh, many of the, uh, the categories were filled, so it's a difficult situation. Um, so... Um, uh, until uh, there was extensions of these exemptions until June 1st uh, when uh, the, the tariffs were surprisingly imposed on the EU, Mexico, and Canada. Um, and uh, other countries had negotiated quotas in lieu of the tariffs, and they included Argentina, Australia, Brazil, and South Korea, as I had already mentioned. Uh, but then uh, countries like Canada, Mexico, EU, and Japan, who was, which was never exempted, were all subject to the steel and aluminum tariffs. Uh, Australia has uh, been the only country that has not been subject to duties or quotas. So um, we have today, uh, we don't know what's going to happen with Canada and Mexico because the issue of the 232 tariffs have been left open and um, the tariffs do remain for the EU and Japan. And we know that um, the, the administration has announced the initiation of talks and perhaps that's something that I would expect that would come up. So, um, so uh, one wonders what the end game is. Is it perhaps it's quotas? Because that's what we've seen in the past. Um, I'd like to talk about the product-specific exclusions. They're very, very specific. I've worked with clients asking for uh, exclusions from the 232 tariffs, and there are two bases for um, getting an exclusion. One is that the steel... I'll use steel as an example because it's easier, um, is not available in a sufficient quantity or quality. Or, and the second uh, basis is national security, which is what the statute is about, <laughs> 232 of uh, the Trade Expansion Act of 1962. So the, as I said, the product, um, there is a form. Uh, Commerce put on its website a form that you must use to make your request. And uh, the, the, um, 
The request must be very specific. You must give the 10-digit harmonized tariff schedule uh, number, and it has is very specific to dimensions of the steel product. Um, as of yesterday, I checked, there were 32,000 32, requests for steel product exclusions, and for aluminum, there were around 4,200. Um, in, in my experience, uh, many of the requests are based on uh, the product not being available in a sufficient quantity or of a particular of those uh, sufficient or adequate quality. M many in many cases, uh, the steel uh, for which uh, a manufacturer is asking for an exemption is a specialty steel. Often, it is developed. Um, the, the manufacturer develop, uh, develops it in conjunction with the, the mill and often with their own customers. In some cases, you know, it may be a, um, a manufacturer of auto parts and, um, they, they, they very, it's, uh, they, uh, carefully and it takes them a long time to develop, um, the specifications for the product. Um, so frequently there is no U.S. manufacturer of that particular steel, and it would take probably years to qualify um, the supplier to produce the steel. So who can fi file? It's, um, it's interesting uh, because it is the only people who can file or entities that can file are individuals or organizations that use the steel and aluminum articles in business activities, for example, construction, manufacturing, or supplying steel or aluminum to users in the United States. Um, that means that sometimes they're not the importer, or the importer of record. And when you're not the importer, you don't always have all the information that you need to fill out on this form. So it is a little complicated and a little foreign to the person who may be making the request. Um, and if you get incorrect information, if you give incorrect information, for example, if you give a wrong HTS number, the Harmonized Tariff Schedule number, that is a basis for rejection of your request. In all fairness, you can refile, but it's taken a really long time to get answers. Uh, initially, uh, Secretary Ross said that um, that they would issue decisions within 90 days. That really didn't happen as evidenced by the 42,000 requests. Um, and the requests are made public. Um, so it was a little bit challenging where the, the, the detail information that you're supposed to provide is proprietary. And so there was a box that you could just check said that you had confidential information and you could provide it separately. Um, the original process um, did provide for objections, um, and uh, that started to happen in the summer, probably in around July. Um, and what happened was we encountered, I've, this is something that I encountered, was that sometimes the, uh, the requester didn't agree with the, the assertions made in the objections, but there was no way to rebut the objections. And so that was a bit frustrating. And surely we thought, of course, you can submit the information, but commerce was not um, amenable to that at that time. Well, there were hearings uh, held and comments made. And um, 
And things did change on 9-11-2018. Uh, uh, there were new regs, and some of the changes are we uh, uh, requesters can file rebuttals. Uh, the objectors can file surrebuttals. Um, they're a little more leeway in the ranges of uh, dimensions for a specific request, so it's a little broader. Um, supposedly, there's supposed to be streamlined review for requests where there are no objections. Um, and there, uh, there are now, um, uh, there's, there is the ability for, for companies that are importing from, from countries that are subject to quotas to make requests. So where are we today? Well, there's still a big backlog. Um, we have, uh, we're working through these new regs where you can file rebuttals and so rebuttals. So I don't, think that, that we haven't seen the benefits of that yet. And um, there's really no wave of decisions on the, stream, on the streamline review. So it has added um, a level of complexity, and it's been, it, is, it has not been easy for those asking for requests. Thank you very much. Um, I appreciate the opening remarks by each of you, uh, which have described a situation that has um, some troubling aspects to it, for sure. Um, what I'd like to ask you now, though, is to elaborate a little bit on the why or, or the how we got where we are. Uh, and, and to do that, I'll draw a distinction between the steel and aluminum process which I understand quite well. I, I don't agree with it particularly um, because, as the senator said, I'm a free trader. Uh, but I understand uh, that the imposition of those tariffs was the product of a very traditional lobbying effort by um, industry. Uh, the, the industry that got the benefits uh, pushed very hard for the imposition of those tariffs. Um, and a lot of other industries have been hurt as a result, but the, the political process is it's possible to understand uh, very easily. In the auto case, however, it's very difficult to find uh, or, or to see who the advocates are from the industry side. Uh, we have uh, representatives here today. We've talked to uh, people representing specific um, auto manufacturers in the United States. None of them seem to be in favor of these trade moves. So where is this coming from politically? How did, how did we get where we are? So, you know, I think, so we have almost a thousand manufacturing members as um, members of our association. Um, some of them are quite small, but some of, many of them are global players. Almost every one of the suppliers that directly interacts with the vehicle manufacturers, a member of our trade association. And they have, um, offices, headquarters, manufacturing facilities all over the world. And I think one of the things that they find troubling is they've asked that question. I've had lots of conversations um, with uh, CEOs about how did we get here. One of the things I think we need to keep in mind is for the United States to stay globally competitive, like John said, to export, we have to compete with other parts of the world. So in Europe, you know, Germany has lower-cost labor in Eastern Europe and North Africa. Obviously, Japan has lower-cost labor in other Asian countries. And we need to be able to maintain and grow our supply chain so that we can continue to export vehicles from South Carolina and continue to export parts 
from all over the country. And that's part of what's really um, troubling about this, as you add an extra cost, either through USMCA or other tariffs, we become less competitive globally. And if we become less competitive globally, our ability to export lessens. And it's just, it's a, it's, it, it is a circular discussion and you end up at the same place and you're sort of wondering, how did we get here? Personally, I think this is a very political issue. I think everyone understands about, or they think they understand about the auto industry. It's usually the second largest uh, purchase that any family or consumer makes in this country. There are a lot of jobs at stake, as we've mentioned, and, you know, in some ways, you know, that is an issue. Although our jobs in the supplier industry have actually increased over the last five years. So, you know, we're saying this is a robust industry that has worked well. I would tell you, and I'll just be quite blunt about what Evelyn's saying, the exclusion process is not working for steel and aluminum, period. It is not working. And if you think about a metal stamper in this country who is, you know, primary purchase is their raw material, and they buy all U.S. steel, so they're not even buying steel from outside of the country. They're just buying it domestically. The cost of their raw material has gone up 50%. 50 percent and that is not unusual you go around to you know supplier after supplier after supplier we've seen what ford has had to say about what their steel purchases are and most of these folks buy steel domestically so you've got this one steel issue which is affecting the entire supply chain you add on to that the 301 We actually have members, and we actually support the administration on a lot of what they're trying to do on intellectual property. But when you have a vehicle, and the average age of a vehicle in the United States is about 12 years. So, you know, you're trying to maintain it. You're going in there. The United States is one of the few countries that allows you to make choices about how you're going to maintain your vehicle. So that allows you to retain that value of the vehicle. You can make good, better, best. Well... In order to do that, aftermarket suppliers bring in a lot of components and actually sometimes components that are then further manufactured from China. What you're then doing is increasing the cost of this by increasing the tariffs on it. Now, I'm not saying this is a zero-sum game, that there are not products from China where we ought to look for tariffs and there aren't ways to address this. But the broad perspective of it is actually really going to hurt the American consumer. So I would say, how did we get here? We have a thriving industry with a lot of employment that people think they understand because most people have one in their driveway or outside their house or in a parking garage. And this has become a very personal political issue for many people. And I think we are sort of the poster child of what the president's trade agenda is. So I I, I think it's – let me just – See if I can briefly add to what Anne said. First of all, I do, I do think, I agree with Anne. Uh, in this administration, the auto industry is, is critical, and, and we are top of mind. And I think that's a great thing uh, because the, the, the auto industry is an important economic engine across the country. So that, that's, that's a good thing. So how did we get here? Um, if your desire is to support the industry, uh, how did we get here? And I think there's probably you know two, maybe two theories. One theory is... We do really want high tariffs, right? So in other words, we want to put up barriers so imports cannot come into the United States. And the 
theory to that would be then therefore we would make more cars here for the US market. The challenge we have with that scenario is we have a global integrated supply chain that contributes to our competitiveness for exports around the world and provides consumers, people like you, with choice and affordability. The other theory about how we got here is this is a negotiating strategy, right? So, hey, the, the way to think about this is we threaten these, these, these punitive tariffs and our trading partners show up and say, let's work something out. Now, Either one of those two theories could be right. I'm not the quest person to ask that question to. Obviously, there are others you need to ask that question to, but either of those two theories could, could, could be, could be operative. With regard to the consequences, however, that's really what I think you're hearing from the industry is that there are consequences to this approach, whether it's a negotiating strategy or it's an actual desire to create barriers. You're already seeing cost increases from steel and aluminum. You're already seeing uncertainty affecting business decisions, affecting business decisions. Senator Portman mentioned that there are joint venture requirements in China. Those joint venture restrictions were lifted for EV manufacturers. Tesla facing... 40% tariffs on vehicles built in California to be exported to China made the decision to do what? Build a plant in China. Because those joint venture requirements have been reduced for EVs and will ultimately be reduced, if you believe the, what the government's telling us, um, for, for the industry as a whole. So, so again, I think those are, the, those are probably the two ways, the two theories for how we got there, and uh, you know, I, I think there are consequences. I'd like to address that. Um, well, how did we get here? I think we can uh, learn a lesson from the steel and aluminum tariffs uh, because if you look at the chronology of events, we have countries exempted. We have uh, then countries that go through negotiations like Korea, and they wind up with quotas. So I think it's true. It's very true that this is about leverage. But I think referring to uh, what uh, Senator Portman said, you don't do this, go up and up, raise tariffs, excuse me, and then to bring them down. I mean, in the past, it's to eliminate tariffs and then remove non-tariff barriers so uh, so these companies can export and be more competitive worldwide. So I think the, the steel and aluminum ta tariffs tell us a lot, and they tell us a lot about the future because uh, these steel and aluminum tariffs are still held over the heads of the EU, uh, Mexico, Canada, and Japan. And so what will happen to those tariffs and then what will happen to tariffs on autos? Thank you. Um, well, it's after 11, but I'm told we have a little bit of time, from extra time from our broadcasters. So uh, this is the time when you and the audience have a chance to participate. So uh, please raise your hand if you have a question, and uh, we'll bring a microphone to you. And uh, please state your affiliation and your name, and, and then ask a question. Let's start with this gentleman right here. Thank you. My name is Paul Nathanson. I'm with Bracewell, and I represent the Coalition of American Metal Manufacturers and Users, and we're a coalition of steel-using manufacturers, uh, metal stampers, tooling, wire producers. My question to the panel is, we hear a lot about rumors about quotas replacing tariffs and that this administration's goal really is to put everybody on a quota system. You know, for our members, for example, on the steel and aluminum tariffs, the South Korean quotas have been a disaster. You know, if you can only get a certain kind of steel from South Korea and that quota fills up, 
there's no way to get that steel, at least with a tariff, theoretically, you can get the steel. So I'm just wondering for uh, the panel, what are your opinion on quotas? And also, we hear about quotas on autos as well. Thank you. Yeah, who wants to take that? So, Paul, as you know, um, our members do well in certainty, with certainty. They need regulatory certainty. They need market certainty. They need that to make investments. They need that to continue to investments. That's part and parcel of what a manufacturer needs to thrive. Quotas do not provide certainty. And I have a joke that, you know, that you can call it a safe harbor. Some people call it a cap. I call the the letters and uh, the the side letters from uh, USMCA. I call them quotas, and I think I totally agree with you. I think we're going to see it on steel and aluminum. I think we're going to see it on autos with Japan, the EU, and the UK if that's where we get go to. But for our members, even if there's room to grow and there's room to grow in the USMCA numbers, um, you still could run up against it. If you see reshoring from China to Mexico for some products, you could run up against it faster. But it, it lacks that certainty. So when you know when some of our manufacturers are looking at a global place that they can invest, do they come here or do they go someplace where there's no quotas attached to it? And you know that's going to be the dilemma that it's unfortunate that we are putting a thriving industry into that sort of conundrum. Yeah, I, I would agree with Anne in the sense that I, I'm concerned that that could be the outcome. I hope it isn't. You know, I hope that the result of these negotiations is that we resolve the tariff concerns uh, through uh, exemptions as opposed to through quotas, which I think are in some ways worse than, you know, than the tariffs because of how they can be uh, inequitably applied. Uh, but I, I do have that concern that that might be, that might be in fact what ultimately happens. That would be problematic for the industry, I think. And just for the uninitiated on the side letters, and they're worth listening to. But for vehicle manufacturers, the quotas are by units, but for suppliers, it's by value. So, and I completely agree with um, John's concerns about how you divide up the units, but if you're doing it by value, and just think of all the members I have. So if you're a larger supplier, do you get up ahead of everybody else, if you think you're going to get run up against that quota, what does that do to a smaller manufacturer? I mean, so the industry has to share this. Well, the industry are competitors sharing that kind of quota. It's it's just it's befuddles the mind how this is really going to work. Um, it is better than tariffs, and it, like again, they did give enough room for growth, but it's it's an unfortunate path we're going down. Well, it. You know, I, I think that the side letter is, um, there's room there, obviously, for comfort, but it's a bad precedent. Mm -hmm. And then we have the history of what has happened on steel and aluminum, which is, a quote, the end game is quotas. So I think there, I think you raise a good issue, and it's a, a, a real issue of concern. Yeah. More questions? Uh, this uh, lady over here. Hi, Marilee, International Trade Today. This is for Evelyn Suarez. Have there been any um, exclusions granted either for Korean quotas, since that's now an option, and have there been any exclusions granted where someone uh, had an objection? Um, you know, I can only speak for what I look for, and it's not easy to look for things on this website. Um, um, but... 
Um, I had no requests involving Korea, um, and I have a feeling that it's too soon because they're so slow. I, I would I would bet on it that they they haven't gotten their uh, exclusion yet. Um, I the ones that I've gotten there were no objections, um, uh, so and we haven't gotten one where there has been an objection, but the, we haven't gotten a denial there either. So the process is. No answer. We have a lot of no answers. Yeah, I would say, so we've been monitoring it because our members have a lot of these exclusion requests are from our membership. I am unaware of anywhere an objection has been filed where an exclusion has been granted. Okay, down here in front. I'm Barbara Bowie-Whitman, an old colleague of Terry's from the State Department in past era. And I was trade officer in Mexico City when we first were getting into the preliminaries for NAFTA, so I have a strong interest in it, and I've been attending several seminars all around town. You've all talked about the difficulty of uncertainty, and that's what we've been through in the run-up to there being a new agreement by a new name whose acronym I refuse to try to pronounce. <laughs> but what I want to ask you is, Given some of the setbacks in the new agreement versus the old, will the auto industry think that it's better to have something we know about than something unknown? And will the auto industry be supporting this new agreement as far as lobbying the Congress to get it passed? Because you can compare no NAFTA versus this, or you can compare this versus the old NAFTA. This versus the old NAFTA is worse for you, but no NAFTA would be worse than that. So where do y'all stand? Well, you know, leave it to, uh, I'll go first, I think. Yeah. <laughs> uh, leave it to a, a, a veteran uh, a veteran diplomat and State Department official to ask the tough question. Thank you for that. Um, so I think the, uh, the short answer is we're still evaluating the agreement. It's, you know, we have the text now, 10 days or so. It is, as I said, very, very complex, much more complex than the agreement that it replaces. And so each company has to look at the text as it relates to their current business model and decide whether there's a, a business case, right, for continued investment. And so different companies will probably come to somewhat different conclusions about that. What, what our job is, representing the industry broadly, is to see if we can get some consensus out of that. I think you're exactly right. You've assessed the scenarios exactly right. This is probably the balance. There's a, still a question with regard to the new agreement, of whether it's str struck the same balance, strikes the same balance as the old agreement in terms of making sure we have a competitive agreement, but still requiring significant uh, regional content. So we have to look at that. I think as we continue that analysis, it'll become a lot more clear where the industry is on this. I will say this, I think no NAFTA would be hugely problematic for an industry that is this integrated. It is it, half, half of the imports from, quote, foreign countries, unquote, into the United States come from Mexico and Canada. Think about it. I mean, that's how integrated we are. Right, so so it is it is really important that we maintain a regional competitive manufacturing platform uh, for autos. So 
you know, we have to, we're going to have to make the same calculations. We have to see what happened, what the outcome of the midterm elections are. We have to see, you know, sort of what elements of the implementing legislation will contain that also can make, make the agreement workable. So there's a lot of things yet to, we have to work through before we can give you a firm answer to the question, are we absolutely for this? So we're working through it, but you're at your, your broad brush sense is right, which is we need a regional agreement to remain competitive here in the U.S. for U.S. auto workers and U.S.-based auto companies. And I would agree. I would say September was a long month. I think our members were quite concerned that we weren't going to be able to come up with a three-party agreement, and that would have devastated the industry. But there are going to be additional costs and we're going to have to assess how that affects everyone and how the regulatory process and underpinnings are going to work. Do the, do the minimum wage provisions in this new agreement make a difference to you? Yes. Significantly. Sure. Yeah. Any other questions? Over here. Hi. Uh, John, you already talked about Tesla moving to starting operations in China. Are there other OEMs or other manufacturers that, instead of manufacturing here and export, will move abroad? Well, as as you, uh, I'm sure you're aware, um, China has a thriving domestic auto manufacturing sector, uh, and many of that those uh, companies operating in China are companies from all around the world who have joint ventures already. Um, just about every company that you can think of is already operating in some level uh, in China. Uh, but you do ask a good question. And I think, uh, you know, while we haven't seen any announcements, specific announcements yet, or announcements that were as specific as what we, what we read about with regard to Tesla, clearly if we maintain a 40% auto tariff, uh, for inbound vehicles into or vehicles leaving the U.S. and going into China, companies that are currently exporting from U.S. facilities to China will have to make some decisions about how to continue to serve that market. I think there's just no question about that. A 40% tariff on any vehicle in any segment is prohibitively high. So we, I think the short answer is we just don't know, but that's an example of the uncertainty that's created this in this environment. And, and by the way, decisions need to be made now. You know, if you're if you're a company and you're developing a new product and you're moving that product to market, you have to make that decision now. You can't wait for the environment to change. And by the way, once that decision's made, that decision sticks for five to ten years. Right? We have we're a long lead time industry, and once we build that product and put it in the marketplace, it's there for a while. So, so again, you you ask a good question, and we'll have to see as as this environment continues to develop. Yeah, I, di I did see one news report last week that Volvo was not uh, likely to be able to maintain um, uh, to utilize the full capacity of the manufacturing plant in South Carolina right. and was going to move some of that production possibly to China. So that's the kind of impact that uh, you could see from things like this. Well, and keep in mind, too, we have a, a a market that has grown a lot but is basically mature. So if you talk to analysts on vehicle production and sales in this country, we've probably pretty much tapped out. Whereas in Asia, you've got a very growing market. So we already went into this with um, other demands on the marketplace that um, could have changed the view. And the, the tariffs on top of that has really changed things too. 
I think one more question uh, over here. Uh, my name is <clears throat> Justin Marbellos with the Government of Quebec. Um, and in the USMCA, or AUMC, which is even harder in French, uh, <laughs> there is still the 70% requirement for North American steel and aluminum, but yet tariffs would still be applied to that very same steel and aluminum. Canada and Mexico have maintained that the discussions about tariffs are under national security are separate from NAFTA negotiations. The administration is not always on that same page. Do you see the signature of the USMCA and the cancellation of the tariffs merging or no? And if not, who should be pressuring the administration that's not already doing so? Well, well, we're pressuring the administration because, you know, steel and aluminum imports from Canada into the United States are very important for our members. And we think that both parties, Canada and the United States, really need to come to an agreement of some sort. Um, very quickly, um, that will work for both parties. Because you're absolutely right. We, we are not going to be able to, you know, maintain this if we cannot maintain that free flow of those raw materials. Yeah, I agree. And I, I, what we're told is that there is an ongoing discussion uh, among the three countries on, on, steel, on the steel and aluminum tariffs. Um, we're encouraging, mm -hmm. uh, as Anne is, we're encouraging that discussion to resolve the issue uh, because I, I do agree with the premise of your question that you, they can't really coexist. Um, you know, the the current NAFTA structure with the steel and with the steel requirements, and then you know the 232 tariffs on top. I guess the end, the, the final question is what will be what will replace the tariffs, and whether it will be quotas. And quotas are not easy because you know tariff you can always pay the tariff, which is not very palatable at 25 percent. But a quota, once you reach the quota, as this gentleman had uh, indicated, you're stuck. <laughs> and it doesn't support, I would not think it would support your just-in-time inventory type of production. I would right? agree. Uh, I'm going to ask our panelists uh, just uh, in one sentence, if they can, um, to each leave us with the, the number one message uh, they would like to um, have us take away from this event today. I know it puts you on the spot, but uh, Anne, let's start with you. That does put us on the spot. Um, motor vehicle supplier manufacturers are all over this country and employ lots of people. They need a free and open global supply chain in order to continue to prosper, and tariffs won't provide that. John? We, we are, the future of the U.S. auto industry is in exports. Uh, we want reduced barriers to trade and more opportunities for more trade around the world. And we uh, hope that uh, the current trade policy is designed ultimately and will achieve that outcome, to do that and will achieve that outcome. Um, importers in, involved in integrated supply chains need uh, predictability and transparency and fairness uh, and uh, I think we're, uh, they need trade facilitation, which is out the opposite of tariffs. Yeah. All right, please join me in thanking our panel. It was fun. Thank you. I learned it.